0: misbehave. Let's misbehave. If you'd be just so sweet and only meet your fate, dear, it would be the great event of
1: 1928, dear. Wow!
0: misbehave.
2: This is uh, Ink Studs on CITR 101.9 FM in Vancouver, out of the University of British Columbia. Uh, my guest today, um, Paul Karasek. Did I get it right? You got it. All right. Now, you have a slew of work, I guess, the uh, predominant being um, the new Fletcher Hanks collections that you edited, um, which are wonderful uh, <laughs> volumes of sheer Old Testament badness. Um in Four Colors? In Four Colors. In, in the traditional sense, nonetheless. Um, as well as uh, Paul Oster's City of Glass, the wonderful uh, collaboration with the always excellent Dave Mazzicelli. And uh, you also have something in the new mm. um, which I read on the way today on the right. bus here. Mm. And Bad News, which I only have the third issue of, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know the first two. And you were also uh, an assistant
3: editor at Raw? Yeah, I was the associate editor of Raw magazine.
2: Now, at which, uh, which point in Raw? Which?
3: Uh, that was the. Uh, I came in around issue four, I guess. The so issue three was a great Gary Panther cover. I came in at issue four. I was taking classes at the School of Visual Arts. And I was at Spiegelman's uh, Language of the Comics class. And uh, I guess after the second class or so, we went out for a cup of coffee, and uh, I guess we kind of hit it off because the uh, next thing I knew, the third week of class, I was invited down to meet his wife, uh, Francoise Mouly, who is the other editor of Raw, and uh, found myself... Uh, <laughs> the
2: the <laughs> premier uh, impacting work in comics in the last thirty years.
3: Yeah, I, who who'd thunk it? But uh, there, that's that's what happened. Uh, I, I really had no idea. You know, I'd been a, certainly a fan of Raw right from the start. I I picked up the uh, first issue uh, immediately when I saw it. So I was very glad to be part of it. But I don't think. I had any sense that it was sort of seminal graphic and comic art review of its time, at the time.
2: I think it's one of those things where um, it could have easily lost in time, it could have been another one of those things where, oh, they did some interesting stuff, but the fact that the work that they selected was so impacting and so interesting and so dynamic.
3: That combined with the fact that uh, the editorship of Art & Francoise is very, very exacting Mm -hmm. and they're uh, quite demanding of their creators, people they work with, and really brought out the best in all of the artists who worked in there. As a matter of fact, I think if you take a look at uh, many of those cartoonists uh, did their best or at least some of their best work for Art & Francoise because uh, they would accept nothing but the very, very finest work. And really, they understood the strengths of the different artists and were able to work with the artists, uh, as an editor should, to bring out the uh, particular qualities that the artist brings to the drawing table.
2: I've heard that from, um, just experiential recounts from uh, Kim Deitch and Gary Panter, both talking about how intense it really was of, you know, almost relationship-shattering, like, exactness that they
3: have... Oh, oh, yeah, absolutely, relationship-shattering. <laughs> you know, the, a new issue of Raw would come out, and our friends was, with, you know, the, the smoke would clear, and they'd look around, and, you know, there would be just dead cartoonists' bodies strewn <laughs> around the battlefield, and <laughs> people staggering to get up to get to the Red Cross tent and uh, get a fresh load of inky plasma to gird them for the next issue. But, you know, very few of these relationships uh, w- were uh, destroyed, they were just merely uh, put on leave.
2: Yeah, yeah, Though no, that's pretty exact what I heard, it's just kind of like, it takes a little recovery time. And what I understand is they also had several different drafts of each issue, too.
3: hmm
2: Like, there's so many different ways they could have gone, so each one is very specific, exacting, to the point.
3: Yeah, so they were they they were very conscientious about shaping the material to fit into a particular idea of what the issue could be. Uh, so even up to the very last minute, the table of contents could shift m- minutely. Uh, an outsider probably, uh, undoubtedly, would never know the difference. But these were things that made a lot of difference uh, to Art and Françoise and. Uh, uh, I learned a lot sitting at that uh knee their knees work, <laughs> uh just to see what went into the how exacting a process creation can be. You know, I think I, I definitely walked away with uh a lot from the experience. There's not the least not the least of which was just a certain degree of work ethic that I didn't possess before really. Uh and uh, it it it's helped me a lot. It, it's resulted in very few projects on my own personal bookshelf. Each, each work that I do seems to take a number of years. But that's just the way it is.
2: <laughs> well, it's interesting, because, I mean, it's all looking, kind of gathering the stuff that I could of the work that I was able to find that you have. It's not like I'm going to f- pull out, you know, Something crappy. I mean, all of them are really fantastic.
3: Well, thank you very books. much. I, I'm, yeah, I'm very. The result is I'm very proud of everything that's on that that meager bookshelf. But it's all taken time. For for example, <laughs> this uh, Fletcher Hanks, the first volume of Fletcher Hanks, uh, collecting the stories of this uh, golden age cartoonist uh, that had not been collected before, uh, features an afterword that. Story, a 16-page story that I wrote and drew that tells what happened to this guy who worked for the three of the earliest years of the comic book and then disappeared. So I found out what happened to him and proceeded to write and draw a 16-page story. Well, uh, my first inclination was to draw it in the style of uh, Fletcher Hanks himself. (laughs) Well, you know, it just seemed to make sense that, you know, you, you... all these fantastic stories about this guy and then a story that is truthful but quite fantastic itself, why not draw it in the style of Fletcher Hanks? So I I taught myself to draw and letter like Fletcher Hanks and I drew pretty much the entire thing. Uh, And... Put it. Yeah, I made a dummy of the book and put it with this. is just the same lesson that I learned from uh, working with Arden Francois. You know, make an entire dummy of the book, rearrange the stories, and I put my story at the end, and realized that it was completely wrong decision to try to draw my st- story in the style of Fletcher Hanks. So I you know, tore it all up, threw it away, and started all over again, and taught myself to teach in a style that was the exact uh, to, draw, to draw in the style that was uh, the exact opposite of Fletcher Hanks mm-hmm. so the story is now rendered in uh, what I was trying for was sort of a sketchy reportage, almost like you were there sort of feeling now I'm not the greatest draftsman in the world so it really was a struggle for me to kind of loosen up and at the same time be tight enough to express what I needed to express in the story but it, that 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 was the way to go with this story so that you get uh, a bunch of Fletcher Hanks stories drawn in this sort of bold outlined uh, odd uh, physical uh, uh, makeup and uh, kind of blunt style and then my story explaining what happened to Fletcher Hanks is done in this completely different style so you you get jolted out of one realm and thrust into a new planet
2: now the, the style in there, that's similar to the
3: work that you're doing with your sister, right? Yeah, it's a little... It's somewhat similar to the book that I did with my sister, The Ride Together, which uh, is a memoir uh, that I wrote uh, with my sister that alternates chapters in prose, uh, written by my sister in chapters in comics, written and drawn by myself that tells the story of growing up with our oldest brother who is autistic and retarded. Uh, and for that that book, it's not too far away from the Fletcher Hanks style, but it's pretty... Uh, it, it's much more articulated and distilled in terms of comics language. Uh, that is, uh, the forms are... Uh, much more simplified than they are in the Fletcher-Hanks story. I wanted it to ha- uh, to be very easily scannable uh, and very uh, easy to read mm-hmm. uh, in contrast to the uh, words uh, written, the prose chapters in My Sister, which one tends to read uh, prose in a very natural way where people are, tend to be much more comfortable reading prose and so you have a way of reading prose and I wanted that ease and level of comfort to be maintained in the chapters uh, in comics so everything is very, very clearly outlined. It's Maybe it's closer to, you know, uh, Herge than it is to the Pleasure <laughs> Hanks story, although certainly nowhere near as precise.
2: <laughs> um. Tell me about your early interest in comics and what kind of pulled you into wanting to explore, um, comics as a, uh, as a career.
3: Gee, uh, uh well, doctor, my <laughs> earliest <laughs> memory of a comic book was, i you know, I didn't realize we were going to go back this far in time. Um, uh, I'm just curious. My earliest like memory of a comic book, though, is kind of funny that I think of it, uh, because, Uh, I was over at a friend's house and they were a neighbor's house and they were having some construction work being done next door and there was a heap of uh, debris in the yard where the builders had left you know, cut pieces of 2x4 and rafters and uh, shingles and whatnot and on this pile I saw from the window a magazine and I went downstairs and there was a comic book lying on this pile of rubble and an issue of Adventure Comics with a uh, yellow-orange Cover. I can remember that color more than I can remember exactly what the drawing was. Uh, And you know, I was—I mean, I might have been nine years old or so—and I was completely sucked into this strange antiseptic world of uh, the Legion of Superheroes. Not so far away, actually, from uh, the Fletcher Hanks world uh, in its uh, airless, stilted quality the the primal punishment and uh yeah well, maybe authority. not yeah m- maybe not that that uh fundamentalist but uh certainly sort of the air quality is not so far away from the Fletcher Hanks air quality so i started reading comic books uh and collecting them and i still have you know thousands of comic books in little plastic bags and uh, uh, my cellar I, uh, this, I started really kind of getting serious about it before they made comic book bags, and um, I wanted to keep them in nice condition. It's a little, I, I, I really don't show any other OCD qualities except perhaps in this comic book collection <laughs> thing, but I <laughs> think that that's part of the male gene. That it has something to do with the X cho- chromosome, the collector's chromosome. But my mom found a place that would manufacture comic b- book bags a plastic bag manufacturer, you know, an hour away, and uh, she wouldn't buy them for me. I had to save up. A, uh, I had a job, so I had to save up um, uh, the money to buy them. But she drove me there. <laughs> so <I took> <laughs> my comic book bags. But, uh, it,
2: reading the the story in the back of the Fletcher Hanks, it seems like she kind of, you know, accepted the the comics uh, addiction begrudgingly.
3: Yeah, well, that's the comic book version of my mom. Uh, <laughs> She's she's she, it, it, actually it's it's part of it's not so far away. She's a very very she's still alive. She's 91 years old and very very sharp, uh, uh, living alone and she's an advocate for uh, the disabled in Montgomery County, in Maryland. Very very active still in state politics at 91. Uh, but she and and an intellectual. You know she's her favorite author is Nabokov, but she she totally digs like you know Robert Crumb, you All know right. and, and gets gets crumb, but, like, the Fletcher Hanks thing is still on the (laughs) street, or it's just so far away from what she can uh, understand her, except she just doesn't get why I'm so excited about by this stuff. I mean, she really does think it's crap. She sticks to her guns, god damn it. (laughs)
2: Um, What were the comics that made you want to make comics?
3: Well, uh, interestingly enough, you know, here is this, this kind of segues to another story about my mom. Uh, which was that, you know, I was uh, I was collecting superhero comics, primarily DC Comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and I got started getting interested more in Marvel Comics, too. I guess that that's a very common pattern for someone my age. Uh, uh, and she bought for me, I might have been like 13, 12, or 13 years old, and she bought for me, there was a large edition of crumb, uh, work. There was the two volumes that came from Ballantine, uh, oversized, sort of raw magazine size. Fritz the Cat and head comics. And she bought <laughs> me these things. And she's just like she opened it up and she was like, "Wow, this guy can really draw. You know, this is really interesting stuff." And so she bought them for me. And then you know, I, I, I could, it, they blew my mind. You know, they really they really blew my mind. Uh, and uh, you know, I had them lying around and. Uh, uh, she she uh, uh, eventually she sort of picked up and picked them up and looked at them and realized that you know they were filled with uh, uh, drugs and um, pornography and uh, sex and drugs, not really pornography, of course. And uh, you know she was very apologetic, but at the same time she she had to admit that it was fantastic stuff. And that that you know really. Uh, there's something, you know, something about Robert Crumb's comics that are so homegrown. They really look like they could be done by a human. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, the, the bullpen production comics of Marvel and DC, they're, they're obviously commercial products. And, got, you know, I know they were credited to people in, in these comic books. I knew they were done by humans, but I could never see myself, you know, when I tried to draw the Mighty Thor, it never looked like Jack Kirby, so why bother? Uh, Still, it was years before I thought of myself, really, I could become a cartoonist. Uh, My first published comics, I guess, were in a student newspaper, and they were heavily influenced by Jules Pfeiffer, Uh, so I guess that he was in very, fairly... Uh, seminal interest in my uh, be wanting to become a cartoonist, but really it wasn't until after I got out of uh, art school. I went to Pratt uh, and I took these night classes. At, no, I did. I, just, I guess I didn't. I was sort of working freelance as a designer, and I just uh, took some classes at the School of Visual Arts. And happened to study with in one year, uh, Will Eisner and Harvey Kurtzman and Art Spiegelman. <laughs> and, uh, three you know, pillars. Yeah, yeah, three of the pillars. All right, uh, yeah, pillars. <laughs> and so, uh, I, you know, I I, 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 you know, really meeting Spiegelman was the was the big influence, and in really thinking that yeah, I could become a cartoonist. Uh, but even then, you know, drawing for me is very, very difficult uh, It's very slow going It doesn't come naturally I have to, I have to draw and redraw uh, kind of painful for me So, uh, you know, it's only recently that I feel like I kind of crossed some little uh, vaporous barrier That I can actually look people in the eye and say, oh yeah, I'm a cartoonist And then the second question is, well so, you know, are you in newspapers? You know, or have I seen your work? <laughs> well, that's a difficult question to answer because my work is so all over the map.
2: That's the thing. It's like I was trying to, like, look around and see what I have. And I'm sure there's stuff that I've missed. But still, like, I, you know, have a fairly extensive collection. And there wasn't a lot I was able to pull out.
1: No, it's not a lot <laughs> <laughs>
2: now, Bad News, that was something that you and Mark Newgarden started?
3: Well, Bad News began uh, as a class project with Spiegelman. He had a very, it's a very good idea uh, to m- uh, make as a goal for a semester's work to produce a comic book that you would actually print and s- distribute. mm mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, he he and Francois were in the middle of doing the self-publication thing in the and, you know, self-publication was, was, you know, what was being done at the time, a lot of it. So it, it was a very good assignment, uh, and the first issue of Bad News was done with in Art's class, and let's see, the second issue of Bad News, I guess, I, I believe that Art, Art kind of handed the class over to... Um, Mark and myself to teach we co-taught uh, that language of the comics class Mark Newgarden and myself mm-hmm. and Art went on to you know, become Art Spiegelman and, <laughs> The uh, man, the legend the, Yeah, the mouse and we, so we did the same class but we were a little pickier and we had some people from outside the class contribute work I think we had something by Jerry Moriarty in that issue and I can't remember who all was in that issue and then the third issue was after we had stopped doing the class and people still needed an outlet for the work It's something like that no it, no, there's student work in that too I can't remember how it all worked out but it had something to do with uh, the school of visual arts and, and, and teaching <laughs> the second issue is pretty great I'm, I'm very uh that's that's my favorite one. It's a big tabloid issue, and there's something just kind of uh, uh, ratty around the edges of it. It's a nice newspaper. It's it's aged well. It's nice and yellow, and even the copies that are in my basement in plastic bags can still it's just it's just they've gotten nice and old and
2: a good musty feeling.
3: Yeah, it was kind of you know I don't I hate to use the word edgy, but it was yeah. It, it was appropriately printed on rotten newsprint. It, it's got a nice explosive in-your-face feel to it, and it hits lots of different notes too. It's a nice it's a nice issue. It's,
2: well, it's, I've, you know, I, there's something I really enjoy about comics, this whole thing that I know Pitcherbox is doing a lot of, the, the newspaper comics, and I really like it. Like, it's,
3: you know... Yeah, yeah. News, you know, uh, comics and newsprint have a relationship that goes back many years. And there's something appropriate, especially uh, when it, it it it's I don't know, comic-y Like I like comics on, on newsprint. Uh, art on newsprint seems a little pretentious to me. Yeah. Like I, you know I kind of like some of the things that Picturebox has done. There was this. i um, uh, what's that fellow's name? John. John. Vermilia. Yeah, John Vermilia. Yeah. Uh, he had a story about three professors. That was on newsprint And I thought Oh yeah This is a really good comic This makes a lot of sense I get I I really like it But some of the other uh, Picture box projects That are just Not less Much less narrative Kind of leave me A little cold Like the paper ad stuff Yeah Just you know I I I I I always feel like I'm not getting it Like I'm not quite Understanding What other people Understand in the stuff And it may be that uh, You know I'm too old Or it may be that you know, I don't take enough hallucinogenic drugs these days, or it may be that I simply—it's not for me, and so I shouldn't get it.
2: And you know what—the
3: way that pop music is not for me, and I don't get it.
2: I don't get the 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 paper ed stuff either. Yeah, well, it's you know, it's, that's how it goes. Yep. Now, the third bad news—that um, was the last issue, right?
3: Yeah, that was the last issue of bad news, and uh, that one was really going to be a great issue, <laughs> 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 and it kind of. Uh, got got rated by raw uh there were several really big important pieces that were going to be in that issue that um you know one way or another found their way into raw magazine which is 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 great because um you know they they got to be seen by more people but uh the third issue of Bad News would be uh, very memorable today (laughs) if it contained (laughs) all the material which includes Mark's uh, story the Nancy story Love Savage Fury Mm -hmm. and uh, Richard Maguire's fantastic piece here the cult classic Uh, and a few few other things
2: where did Richard Maguire come in was that someone that you knew that you kind of pulled into the fold or
3: Um, I'm reluctant to say because I don't want to get it wrong Uh, But uh, somehow Richard was involved with SVA. Maybe he was taking arts class, and then, you know, we just stayed in touch and became uh, chummy. I I, I can't quite remember. But I remember that that we were working on him with... uh, Mark and I were working on him uh, with that piece here. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Very much in, in... you know, editorially, you know, so, um, but, uh, yeah, so he was, he was just part of the gang that was hanging out there.
2: It's, it's just, he's so fascinating, like his work is just, there's no one else like no, him. No, but there's
3: a hell of a lot of people who are trying to be. Yeah. You know, the the list of Richard McGuire Im- imitators stretches, uh, well, <laughs> take every contemporary magazine and lay it edge to edge, you know, and you can find somebody who's trying to snap off a little bit of Richard's stick. The
2: phones. Well, there's, are they doing a collection of his stuff one day?
3: Excuse me? Is
2: is there a collection one day of his stuff coming out?
3: Um, Hopefully. Well, I've heard rumors of it for years. You know, there was... Uh, I know that Richard has, has uh, talked about doing an extended book-length... Uh, a of, version here. Of, of here, yeah, but um, uh, I don't know.
2: I just can't see it being needing to be any longer. It's perfect as it is. <laughs> um, it's interesting that you work so closely with Mark Newgard. I mean, both of you—it's like very select amount of work.
3: Yes, it's true. Yeah, it's it's an interesting that we both landed in that vector of the universe at the same time, and. Uh, Oddly enough, uh, we're back working together again right now. Uh, Our next project, which will be out next spring, uh, God and the economy willing, (laughs) is an extended book-length version of our essay, How to Read Nancy. Oh, wow. That appeared in... Uh, Brian Walker's collection uh, The Best of Ernie Bush Nancy back in the 80s and subsequently went on to become some sort of cult uh, thing Uh, you know we periodically it would get posted on the web or uh, someone would ask us for a version I know it was used in a lot of comics classes and Mark and I both used it independently in classes that we've taught over the years and uh, so uh, the, the premise of this for uh, listeners, I, I, I forget for a moment that we're actually being recorded, and there are people who are going to listen to me lather uh-huh. on like this yeah. To the listeners, uh, our friends at home, <laughs> uh, the premise is uh, how to read Nancy. Once upon a time, back in 1959, there's a comic strip called Nancy, and on August 8, 1959, there's a three-panel Nancy comic strip. And we believe that if you look closely enough at this strip, that everything that you need to know about reading comics or making comics is deftly hidden within the lines of those three panels. And so we deconstruct this comic strip element by element, looking at the words, the dialogue, the word balloons, the placement of the characters, the character design, the shape of the panels, the size of the panels, uh, spread by spread until there's nothing left, until it's been decomposed (laughs) to ashes. Uh, And this, just oddly enough, coincides this will be published by Fantagraphics.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, That's what so I was wondering. Yes, your friends at Seems obvious. And uh, oddly enough, though, it coincides with a, a harebrained project uh, actually, excuse me, a fantastic project uh, that they have uh, come up with reprinting the entire run of Ernie Bushmiller's Nancy. I mean, I can I can think about six guys who might be interested in having this whole series. But and one of no, them... Oh, well, yeah, okay, seven. <laughs> no, I was going to say, again, one I of them... Thought, I thought there were only going to be seven people who were going to buy, uh, you know, you shall destroy all the civilized planets. And look, now we've come out with volume two of the complete Fletcher Hanks in two volumes.
2: I was going to say, one of them will definitely be Ivan Brunetti. <laughs>
3: <laughs> oh, yeah.
2: Yeah, uh, he 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 has an odd obsession with Nancy. Yeah,
3: yep. yeah. Well, there's the secret, uh, you know, Ernie Bushmiller Society, which I don't even know whether I'm allowed to speak about on the radio. I might uh, find a, uh, a black uh, spot I'm nailed to my door tomorrow morning. <laughs> but he's a member. Oh, <laughs> cats out of the bag.
2: Some kind of mafia thing. Mm-hmm. Now, um, maybe a little bit about the City of Glass. About Mm -hmm. how that came out in that collaboration.
3: Well, uh, there was a fella on the West Coast who named Bob Callahan, who had done some editing of, I'm not sure what, I can't recall, and he was interested in it. He had this idea uh, to publish a series of books that uh, were. No, gra- graphic novelizations of contemporary American fiction. Of course, we didn't call them graphic novels then. But long comic books,
2: you know, uh, what? and you can just use comic books with me. That's fine. Yeah,
3: yeah. Uh, uh, and I guess he gave Spiegelman a call, and they became chummy. Uh, and Art, at this point, was very happy to uh, help anyone who was going to promote. Uh, uh, some more residents on the novel-length comic bookshelf where Mouse had stood alone for several years and was destined to stay alone, stand alone for several more years. Uh, and so he, he, they came up with some, some names and some ideas. And I guess Art had been friendly with uh, Paul Auster and uh, thought. That City of Glass would be a good choice to initiate what was g- supposed to be a series of uh, these comics, mm-hmm. uh, and so uh, I, I guess the reason why they chose City of Glass was that it seemed like uh, it, w- it would be impossible to do. At least that was Art's reasoning. And to try something really hard, uh, <laughs> some kind of odd,
2: sadistic punishment.
3: Yeah, well, you know, if you could do that, then anything else, you know, then you could do anything else, and uh, it, it it could feasibly work. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it be, you know, I don't know, Cats Cradle or the Crying Lot Forty Nine, whatever you wanted to try, you could you could do it. Uh, and but I think that he thought it was still doable anyhow. So, I guess David came aboard first, uh, and he. Tried to do some uh, breakdowns of it, and he did. Uh, this is David Mazakelly. Mm-hmm. He he did some wonderful drawing, and but they, they just was struggling with some of the uh, language issues that were involved uh, in retelling this complex uh, non-genre genre book. You know, it's it's a uh, it's an existential uh, polemic, really, that's disguised as uh, detective fiction, and uh, and it's really not about who done it at all. It's about uh, identity and uh, a lot of duality, language, duality, uh, and and uh, you know language, uh, the language of identity, and. Uh, Anyhow uh, I was living I'd moved out of New York City at this point And was talking to Art on the phone And he said You know we're doing this series of Adaptations Of American uh, Novels into comics uh, But we're really struggling with this one And I thought maybe you'd like to take a crack at it I said well what is it And he said "Uh, Well it's called City of Glass by Paul Auster (laughs) And I, I and my jaw kind of dropped to the ground. and I said, well, i tell you the truth. I, I, I already tried it. Uh, it's t- like 20 years before, so maybe it wasn't that long ago, maybe it was like 12 years before, I believe, uh, I had been teaching in Brooklyn, and Paul Auster's son Daniel was in my class. Uh, I was teaching studio art. And I, I, at this point, Oster wasn't very well-known. He had only written the New York trilogy. And uh, I thought I'd, I'd brown-nosed the parent-teacher conference and uh, bone up on my Paul Oster. I knew that he'd written these books. I read these books, and I, I really liked them. And I did some sketches, in one of my sketchbooks for a breakdown of the beginning of City of Glass, just because, you know, it's just one of those things that you do in a sketchbook. Uh, and of course you know I never mentioned it to Auster and I don't think we ever even talked about his books mostly we talked about what a great kid his son was Uh, and so suddenly for Art to say well what about *City of Glass well I'd already been thought about it Uh, and so I sat down to do the uh, breakdown for it Uh, and more than a script what I did was a sketch for each page of the novel full page sketch like Harvey Kurtzman did for his uh, EC work comic stories, do a full, you know, sketch rendering with all the words in place and the compositions pretty much worked out, and uh, yeah, it just it it was one of those uh, kind of magical experiences. I just sat down and did it and and did the whole thing in a couple weeks, and and I just knew it. I would hit it. It was very. It was just flowed. It was as though it was all stored up in me and just kind of flowed out there. So it was, it was a wonderful uh, experience. And then I gave the script to the, my breakdowns to David, and then David did his version of my version, and he brought a lot to it because David. Uh, he's a much more skilled draftsman than I And is a very, very smart guy As we can see from his yeah. latest masterpiece uh, And he uh, he opened it up a lot I, I, I made the book fairly claustrophobic uh, In terms of uh, the rigidity of the comics page grid A lot of
2: dialogue? No, no, no Okay
3: No, not dialogue-wise, just visually mm-hmm. uh, I had this idea of really sticking with this three-by-three three grid throughout. Uh, and David used it more as an invisible template. Uh, and there's, he put in some landscapes and some he just got some air into the book that it was desperately needing. It was a brilliant move on his part. And then we sat down, Oster and Spiegelman and Kelly uh, and myself sat down one afternoon and we went through David's Uh, the the completed version I I actually took it back from David and made some corrections and changes too so we had the final sketch version that was very tight and went through it panel by panel uh, one rainy uh, coffee and smoke filled afternoon and uh, then everyone gave it their blessings and off David ran with it and did some beautiful drawing and the book is back in print and uh, uh, doing very well it's lots of editions of it and uh, uh, the Comics Journal decided that it was one of the quote best comics of the 20th century much to my pleasure and surprise
2: I won't won't argue it's fantastic (laughs) and it's interesting um, reading it right now in comparisons with David's latest book Mm -hmm. and you can see how it helped him develop Mm. um, from where he's gone and where yeah, you know, where he started, where he got to.
3: Yeah, it's, and some uh, it's interesting because I can I see I see uh, some of uh, a lot of uh, I of course can't help but see it in comparison to City of Glass in some ways as well. But I think a lot of uh, David's choices in his new book Asterius up is uh, are reactions against some of the games we were playing in City of Glass. Uh, uh,
2: some uh, of the formalism
3: yep yep so, and and we kept the world of Steve glass very uh, dictated by the grid and David uh, allows in his new work a much more nuanced approach and it uh, creates a uh, quite a different texture uh, uh, with peaks and valleys ups and downs and uh, a m- more of a graphic uh, um, realization of the page was mine is my approach from the start was very um comics laden
1: mm-hmm. you know
3: i had just i at this point of my life uh harvey kurtzman to me was just you know the greatest cartoonist <laughs> ever lived and uh, a lot there's a lot in there that's that's indebted to the comics work of Harvey Kurtzman I was very consciously making a comic and I think in uh, David's book uh, there's an attempt to not I mean, it's its more graphics about graphics than it is comics in a lot of ways well
2: it's is he creating a new language in comics I feel like alright his, his latest book
3: mm-hmm.
2: if that makes sense like, sure he's kind of taken pieces from the past and put them together and you know kind of gone okay here's where we go mm-hmm. now okay. truly truly one of the greats in the media you know oh yeah he That's, certainly is yeah. i would i would kill to do an interview with him but i know it's never gonna happen
3: <laughs> it's sad no he's not interviewing anyone about this book
2: no oh. nope i know <laughs> <laughs> sigh Ah, uh, as i'm sure folks are sick of hearing me complain
1: uh. of the greedy kind, all of my one are simple, I know what's on my mind, I'm not resting until I find, what would make your eyes listen with joy, now listen big boy. I want to be loved by you, just you, nobody else but you. I want to be loved by you, alone. boo boo ba I want to be kissed by you, just you, nobody else but you. I want to be kissed by you, alone. Up, up, I couldn't aspire to anything higher than feel the desire to make you my own. Ba, 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 dee, la, ba I wanna be loved by you, just you, nobody else but you. I wanna be loved by you, love. Thank you.
2: let's just jump into uh, into the, the medium itself and um, it's interesting we're talking about you know someone like David who has a very specific vision of what he's creating and we'll go 70 years in the past and look at Fletcher who has a very specific vision of what he's creating mm. um, not necessarily as uh, nuanced and educated but still he has a very specific theme and idea behind his work?
3: Well, I think that they're in some ways diametrically opposed because Fletcher Hanks is uh, completely unintellectual. Uh, It's coming from uh, an id-driven place, and I think David's work is coming from a very cerebral place. Uh, um, Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well,
2: it's just uh, like... It really it's interesting g- getting that biographical information that you added into the second volume really gives you more of a context of what you're looking within this work.
3: Mm.
2: like you see where he's come from, what mm. is this background to this guy. and it's like it really makes sense within what you're reading.
1: Mm. like
2: it it it's less of the idiot savant and more of the, you know guy filled with this kind of rage.
3: Who has always wanted to become a cartoonist Yeah You know, I, I think that uh, uh, Several people have asked me Well, why should I bother with this second book? This first book of Fletcher Hanks stories Is so great, you know And it's got your little comic book And the comic story in the back That explains who Fletcher Hanks was And uh, you know, I didn't set out to do two books of Fletcher Hanks. See, it, it, it really it honestly took me by surprise mm-hmm. that the book w- was that popular, let alone popular enough to win an Eisner Award. And, uh, when the publisher suggested, you know, we should think about maybe doing a second volume, and I realized that I wasn't. I wasn't uh, you know, at the, at the fir- when the first volume came out, I just put all the stories that I had into a book. Uh, subsequently, in the you know in the year and a half that followed, I I started collecting enough stories. I realized I was I was only several short stories shy from having the entire Fletcher Hanks. So I got I got them all, and then it made sense to put out a second volume that's the complete Fletcher Hanks. And I think that w- several things happen uh, when you read the two books together, uh, and one is. Is what you were getting at, which is that in the second volume, rather than a comics uh, afterward, is sort of a more traditional text introduction that contextualizes the work mm-hmm. and places Fletcher Hanks historically, uh, and that allows you to dive into the work in the second book with a completely different understanding. But combined with the uh, the power and the glory of the first work and the, biograph- the biographical material uh, and sort of of more uh, emotional reaction on my part uh, in the afterword of, se- of the first book, and then to go into the second book with this contextualizing introduction, and then the material in the second book is, I think, really stunning and eye-opening. Uh, when you know who he, what he was and who he was and why he was doing what he was doing. Uh, there are stories in the second volume that are absolutely as great and as weird and as twisted and as disturbing as those in the first stories. But there's also some work in the second volume that hits some very distinctly different notes. Uh, and I think it's those different notes, uh, some of them are sort of stayed, some of them are kind of awkward, uh, there are, are notes in the second volume that are far more brutal than anything uh, in terms of graphic horror uh, than you see in the first book and uh, I think that the two books together really work well you know I, 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 um, I was thrilled last week I got a call from uh, Art Spiegelman uh, and uh, he was very Complimentary about the second book, uh, and uh, which is rare to get a compliment <laughs> from Art Siegelman. So I, was of course, just thrilled. It's sort of like uh, 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 like one of the you know apostles getting a ring from Jesus. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> Wait a second, can I take that back? No, can I take that back? Oh God, some people are going to hate me for that. Guy. But you know. It, uh, Not to equate myself with the Apostle Paul but uh, Did I just say that? Oh my God Uh, uh, But he used the word uh, gestalt You know, there's a gestalt that occurs When you put these two books together It's it's much, they're much better together Than just the first volume on its own I think, you know, for the casual reader Yeah, you don't need more than, you know One book of Fletcher Hanks, be sure But if you're into this stuff and you have the time and patience to really kind of take a long soak in these two books together. There, there's there's some resonance that occurs within uh, the entire fifty-one stories, uh, bouncing against both the comic that I did and the introduction.
2: Mm-hmm. It one thing that struck me from something you just said, you're talking about how you the the afterward, the first book was more among, Emotional, emotionally driven than the second. I kind of got the opposite feeling.
1: Mm.
2: I kind of felt like the the afterward in the first one, you were being kind, Mm. and the second one is when the honesty comes out, and it's like here's this degenerate, you know, wife Mm. beating, Mm. alcoholic, just maybe maybe it is a lack of emotion of just being such a raw historian, just. That was not a purposeful pun. Um, (laughs) But just being very, here's all the facts, you do with it what you will.
3: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that we, I had to set the record straight on some accounts. I realized that after the first book. uh, You know, when people were saying, oh, he's the Ed Wood of comics, or, you know, he's the Henry Darger of comics. Well, he is not. You know, he's not an outsider, naive cartoonist. The fact of the matter is that uh, after the first book came out, the family shared with me, and I now share them in the introduction of the second book, some uh, cartoon correspondence course drawings that Hanks had made when he was a lad, Mm-hmm. Back, in the, back in the day, if one wanted to become a, car- a cartoonist, and many people aspired to this profession, it was a very uh, sexy profession to be a syndicated cartoonist. You were uh, well-read and famous and well, well-paid, uh, and, and there were no cartooning schools. Uh, you could send away for a correspondence course on cartooning, and Hanks did. His mother footed the bill, and he did these drawings that are very, very competent uh, homework assignments. Uh, he was determined to be a cartoonist. It wasn't something he was doing, you know, in the closet, and somebody discovered years later, uh, you know, hidden in a trunk in the attic. Uh, so that when the comic book industry started, he was ready to become a cartoonist. He was much older. Mm -hmm. Bear in mind And most of the contemporary uh, Cartoonists Doing comic book work At the time Most of those guys Were in their late teens You know I think Jack Kirby Was like something like 17 When his first comic work appeared Eisner was a bit older But not much In his early 20s And so Fletcher Hanks Seized on this opportunity Because they Suddenly Publishers are springing up left and right publishing these comic books and they needed to find young artists to be able to fill them up. If you take a look at a copy of, say, Fantastic Comics number seven, let's say, it's got a fabulous Fletcher Hanks story in it. That's the one with the anti-gravity ray and the people floating in space. Mm-hmm. And the, the, uh, thugs pulled the anti-gravity ray and, uh, everyone on the planet Earth goes flying, floating into space and leaving the three thugs to pillage the uh, uh, Fort Knox. Of course, they don't float away because they've conveniently and intelligently chained themselves with massive chains to the Earth's surface. This is a really, really beautiful story. It's some great drawing, highly articulated, very well told. There's... Everything is... In, that needs to be in this story is in place. It's mm-hmm. spot-on from panel one to the end. If you would take a look in this issue of Fantastic Comics se- 7 and, say, take a look at the story before it, at the story after it, they pale in comparison. You know, they're, they're barely confident. Occasionally there's a panel that's kind of nicely drawn, but it's nicely drawn because, you know, it's a tracing of something that Alex Raymond drew in Flash Gordon, or it's a copy of a movie still. The buildings are sketchy. Characters kind of come and go. People enter from the left instead of entering from the right. When they, you know, balloons are misplaced. The early comic early comic book work is horrible, mm-hmm. and Hank's stories stand out in any of these early comics as being just simply more competent well, than the rest of them because he was a trained cartoonist.
2: Well, that that kind of jumps in that, that dichotomy between being. A strip cartoonist And a comic cartoonist Like it sounds like These guys The young guys Were going in To make comic books And here's someone Who couldn't succeed At comic strips And had to go To comic books
3: Yeah And the rest of the guys Were hoping That one day That they would become Comic, comic strip artists Yeah That was That was what Everybody wanted to be
2: And some of them did
3: Yeah some of them did
2: Kirby and Eisner
3: Yep
2: Um Now, tell us about how people became aware of the existence of this mysterious Fletcher Hanks.
3: Well, uh, one day when I was working at Raw, uh, the uh, artist and cartoonist Jerry Moriarty, who, by the way, has a fantastic new book out collecting his comic strip work, Jack Survived.
2: And he'll be on the Ink Stud show next month.
3: Oh, (laughs) <laughs> well, I, you're, you're in luck Because Jerry's new book is fabulous From Ventura Press mm. I can't recommend it highly enough I'm, I really, really love Jerry's stuff And Jerry uh, brought in a stack Of Fletcher Hanks uh, comics Into the Raw office uh, Moriarty's got this extraordinary eye uh, He is also a, a member Of the Bushmiller Secret Society <laughs> and, and has some of the greatest Uh, Bush Miller originals, uh, of, of them all. You know, he just, he's been at it, he's an older guy and he's been at it for a a really long time and has got a great eye. And so he brought this stuff in and of course none of us had ever seen this work before Fledger, who, you know, and uh, we didn't even believe the guy's name was Fledger Hanks because he worked under so many. Pseudonyms, that we well, in the raw,
2: it's listed under a different name.
3: Yeah, Barclay if, Flag, I think, or, or Henry Fletcher. Henry I Fletcher, think, yeah, that yeah, was it. Yeah, we decided that Henry Fletcher was the most likely name, whereas Henry Fletcher was just another made-up name, and his real name was Fletcher Hanks. We decided we discarded Fletcher Hanks right off the bat as being the had to be the made-up name. Uh, so Moriarty brought this work in, and we reprinted this very same story that I was describing earlier from Fantastic Number Seventy, Andy gravity Ray, Jip Clip, and Antigravity Ray, <laughs> and uh, that and that was about it. You know, that's since you know, sort of twenty years go by. And I occasionally would find a coverless copy that I could afford of uh, fan, you know, Fantastic Comics or an early Planet Comics. So I had a few Fletcher Hank stories, not too many. And uh, then the internet came along, and someone sent me a link to one of the stories. You know, this is the prehistoric days of the internet. You know, before, you know, you know. Now you 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 get online in the morning, you can find out what the guy down the street had for breakfast. But this was the time when you the stuff just wasn't up there in the internet. And uh, so I entered the search words Fletcher Hanks, and there were no other comics posted and then occasionally i'd find out something about uh... fletcher hanks the pilot Oh, fletcher hanks the pilot and then i came across this website about world war two cnac pilots guys who flew uh... cargo planes over the himalayas to supply fuel to shankai and. There was something in there about Pilot Fletcher Hanks And a light went off And I thought, oh, this Fletcher Hanks He stopped making comics in 1941 He must have become this pilot mm-hmm. uh, And and become a World War II hero Okay, so... I'm sort of scrolling down through this thing, and there at the bottom of the page is information. If you want to contact Captain Hanks, here's his address. <laughs> so I was like, well, what the hell? So I wrote him a letter, and I said, if you're the same Fletcher Hanks who uh, was the cartoonist, uh, did these superhero stories, and whatnot, uh, I, you know, I'd like to get in touch with you. And like two hours later, I got an email back. My name is Fletcher Hanks, Jr. My father, Fletcher Hanks, Sr., was an artist, but I don't know if he's the cartoonist you are interested in because he left home when I was 10, owing everyone in town, having busted my mom's jaw, something like this, you know. Mm -hmm. And now I'm completely confused But I'll never forget the final line Of his email He said, there may have been two Fletcher Hanks Who were cartoonists There may have been two Fletcher Hanks who were cartoonists But only one son of a bitch like my dad So I struck up uh, An acquaintance with uh, Fletcher Jr. And I went down Pretty much as it is in my story In my comic story Although I rearranged time a little bit for narrative purposes, but I went down there and, and interviewed him. Actually, in real life, I went. I, I took my mom with me because she, she wanted to go. She was curious at this point. In the comic story, I'd leave her at home and just use her as sort of a, a introductory device to be able to gas off about Fletcher Hanks for a few panels. But she actually went with me, and I took a tape recorder and interviewed him. And that's how I learned the story of what a, a ghastly person his father, Fletcher Hanks Sr., the cartoonist was. And uh, for the last few weeks, I've been working on a, I taught myself how to use Final Cut Pro, and I'm making a Final Cut movie uh, that is, it's really just a kind of a glorified slideshow, but it uses this tape of Fletcher Jr. as the narrator for something that I call the Fletcher Hanks Experience. And I will be uh, traveling with that to... Uh, I'll be at the SPX, the Small Press Expo. I think I'll be showing it there. And another gig in Washington, D.C. at Politics and Prose. And at The Strand in New York City in September sometime. And I will show the Fletcher Hanks experience. <laughs> that, <laughs> I, 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 I love. I, I love
2: that you're going to be using... The recording of his vo- of Fletcher Hanks Jr.'s voice, I just I love that aspect. That's one of the reasons I like doing the show is to get a voice behind who uh. are these people? <laughs> it's such a unique odd thing. Hmm. Um, maybe it's my own little interest. <laughs> now, the stories within the the work of Mr. Hanks, um, they all seem to have the same. Theme of someone wants to destroy something—a civilization, a people, something—and the punishment is um
3: doled intense,
2: out doled out with uh, yes,
3: yeah, a flaming sword of justice. <laughs> yeah, not before some normal humans have suffered, though. You know, a lot of people die in Fletcher Hanks' stories before the hero gets around to doing anything about it because these heroes really don't care about the human race uh, which is beneath them. They're more interested in restoring equilibrium and uh, exercising some self-righteous venom. Uh, But, yeah, you're right. That's sort of the boilerplate. Uh, What's remarkable is that, you know, Hanks crank these stories out, 51 stories in three years is a hell of a lot of work and even though these, the, this story template majority of the stories that, that are in both of these collections follow that uh, general uh, matrix uh, it's remarkable how many variations he found graphically to tell these stories it's just, it's just amazing, you know. It's, it's, there's a tidal wave, and there's planets pummeling through space, and there's women with laser beams on their heads, flying, flying dragons. You know, it's just, it's, it's the the guy's uh, graphic imagination is stunning.
2: I'm curious what you his influences what you think his influences would have been because like you're saying in the in the afterward how it's kind of like some kind of Homeric epic and I'm kind of reading it like some kind of you know Moses and Exodus and that kind of thing
3: well I think uh, you know I'm 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 making fun of myself there of course okay. in my comic strip uh, uh, putting on my high hat and equating him with Homer Giving and, and,
2: it, intellectualizing
3: it. Yeah, yeah, and justifying my fanboy interest. Uh, but you know, I, I, there's no doubt that he had to sit in church and listen to his father preach. His father was, you know, straightforward, hellfire and brimstone. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so I think a lot of his story come from that sense of biblical retribution. And I think he said, I think that's as, it's as simple as that. And you combine that with a guy who was spoiled, had everything that he wanted from an early age. His mother was wealthy, and she spoiled him. And uh, a sense of entitlement and anger fueled by a uh, dysfunctional taste for alcohol. And you end up with these these tales. I think another interesting question, though, is is what's uh, what's Fletcher Hanks going to influence? You know, now that these stories are out and about, I'm curious to see. I, I mean, people send me some fan art by the time. I know some students have done some stuff. There was there was a, a ret not a retelling, but a, a modern version of a Fletcher Hanks story done by some contemporary cartoon, it's the only one that I know of but I think that uh, there's going to be some kind of Fletcher Hanks ripple
2: Well I know the the one I mentioned to you the, which I, I find really fascinating is the, uh, the Chester Brown
3: Oh yeah, tell that story
2: Well he, in another interview with uh, David Lapp uh, he was friends with Chester Brown and Chester apparently was about 20 odd pages into his new book um, and read the first Fletcher Hanks collection and stopped and restarted, mm. and which is interesting. The fascinating thing about that is, uh, do you know what his next book is going to be about?
3: Uh, isn't that the one of his experience with prostitutes? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I can't wait to see it. And, and I mean, s- I think Chester Brown is 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 great. You know what? Uh, how he, you know, that that Louis Real book is is one of the. Uh, uh, you know neglected masterpieces i just i think it's a really really strong piece of work and and uh certainly he was influenced in just the right way by uh harold gray uh in that book so i i completely trust chester to do right by by fletcher hanks he would be about the only person i could think of yeah who would be going to be influenced by uh another cartoonist Fletcher in this case Fletcher Hanks it's going to be something something worth waiting for
2: Well the 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 fascinating thing with Chester himself is he has kind of an interesting set of morals and values as well mm-hmm. like he's not I don't know he's uh, he ran as a libertarian yes. in the most recent Canadian elections did not get elected thank god um because then he can it's still stolen. make comics
3: Exactly <laughs>
2: <laughs> um but I I mean I'm not going to get into this too much um, Mm -hmm. probably not appropriate for me to discuss too much on air um, but I mean he's I'm not going to say like to the point of uh, a Steve Ditko type thing and not necessarily that whole punishment stuff but he does have interesting political views and I think that'll be fascinating to see how it comes across Mm -hmm. and I look forward to it it's uh, he you know to me he's one of the most important uh, cartoonists of his era, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. you know, I don't think anyone has, uh, except for maybe Crumb um, touched on Autobio, or Crum and Spiegelman, I should say, on Autobio as well as he has. Mm. So. Yeah. Yada yada. Good <laughs> stuff. Um, any last comment? Any other comments on Fletcher? On the wonderful books?
3: Um, no, I guess, you know, we've said it all. He's, he's you know, maybe Robert Crumb said, summed it up best when he called Fletcher Hanks a twisted dude. Yeah, that's my favorite quote. But I guess, I, I guess, you know, if people are thinking about, I, you saw it all in book one. I would just urge you to take another look at book two. Uh, it's denser, and as I was trying to make the case earlier before then, you put the two big books together, something new starts to occur. Uh, so.
2: Well, it's def- it's a companion piece, and the uh, the historian in me finds a lot of value in that second book, well, just the you. the work, the research work, and mm-hmm. it seems like you've kind of delved further into what this work is. And I guess that was partly because of being of the first book. You said you got more support or more interest from the family, right?
3: Yes, yeah, that helped a lot, and I had. Just spent more time thinking and looking at the work. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I never. It, it. I guess maybe there's some, some kind of stain theme thread weaving through all this. You know, like the the City of Glass project. You know, it came to me, but I would already come to it. Mm-hmm. Like these projects, I don't have too much on my bookshelf, but in each case, their projects, their that that I had thrust upon me you know some people make projects some people are made by projects and some people have projects thrust upon them and and my work seems to be uh, coming from some other place I'm not a deeply spiritual person but it's hard not to think that there's something else going on here whenever I try to sit down and do something you know, like, let's take this piece For syn- syncopated that you read yeah. You know, that was sort of an assignment I gave myself You know, it's okay You know, it does the job I think that, you know, if you're interested In learning more about The psychi- psychologist Eric Erickson you know you're taking a psychology class could be useful in psychology class but you know it's not gonna you know it's not gonna change anyone's life or you know there's not a lot of people as a matter of fact your mention of it is the first time any it's the book's been out for a couple months first time i've heard anyone even mention to me that they knew it existed you know so you know that's the kind of thing that i do when you know, I give myself something to do. So what? I'm sort of waiting for things to come to me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I wish I had a chance to read your, uh, the, the, the other book. The, when the Ride Together. Yeah, The Ride Together. I mean, I'm waiting for it in the mail, and I hope I don't have it before. Now, it, um, just looking at the topic of the, of that book, it seems like your syncopated thing is kind of an afterword.
3: Uh, well, I'm interested in... in child development you know mm. I've, I've raised kids myself and i've been in, involved in education really all my life yeah i'm a teacher i'm an administrator i founded uh co-founded a, a charter school where i live um and i you know i'm just very interested in in in, in issues dealing with child development so it's just kind of a natural extension of what I'm what I'm interested in, so I don't know if it's really a follow up to uh, the ride together, but it's you know it's certainly part of what I'm what I'm interested in looking at and thinking about.
2: Well, that and then keep in mind the, the comment was made without actually having read
3: the ride together. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you, when you once you read the ride together, if you want to talk again about the ride together, I'm hap- I'm always happy to talk about that book. That of all the work I've done, you know, that's probably the most important book to me personally. Uh, because <laughs> it's my memoir. It's about yeah. my family. You know, my sister and I set out to write a book that would be useful for our children uh, to understand who we are and why we are the way we are. Uh, really, we just started... My sister started it as a series of journal entries, and it kind of grew and developed from there. Uh, so, it's a, you know, it's a deeply personal work to me. And when it came out, you know, it just missed... The so-called graphic novel revolution by a couple of years, so it didn't really it didn't really make too much of a of a ripple. It was a nice piece excerpted in, in the New York Times, it helped sales a little bit, but certainly the comics community, with the exception of Tom Spurgeon, who wrote a very nice uh, uh, piece in the Comics Journal, but. You know, it it didn't sell too well, and people you know people are still surprised when they h- even hear about it that it's something that I worked on. So uh, I I always like to talk about it because I think it, I think it's a very interesting it's, book.
2: It's easy to track down.
3: Yeah. Oh, yeah. And F- it's cheap on Amazon Take or look, or, or eBay or something. You can probably get it for a song or a dance. Um, not even a dance. <sighs> Just the song. Just the song. It's interesting
2: the fact. That you're just, it, it's about family, which I could imagine is a lot harder to do than a strict autobiography about yourself.
3: Well, uh, it was harder to do because uh, it it's about my family and I was writing it with my sister. And my sister, when you're working with a relative on a project, my sister's like BSO meter is like hair trigger. <laughs> <laughs> so I couldn't get away with, like, you know, fudging a detail or, you know, honestly, worse still, making myself look better or someone else in the family look worse than I actually did. You know, so there's a sort of telling it as it is uh, factor built into...
2: You can't fall the, back on the Joe Matt syndrome.
3: No, absolutely. It's, it's, it's... Everything is right there. So it's a very honest book, I think, too. Some people might... Feel it's a little sentimental, but I don't think it is. I think it's pretty much the way we are and who we are. And you know, you might not be interested in my family. That's that's fine. But you know, there's some. I think you know, one of the reasons we wrote this book is because uh, uh, one of the reasons why I felt compelled to turn it into a book, as opposed to just an artifact for our uh, progeny, was. That when I was a kid When I was 12 or 13 years old I felt very isolated I had friends and whatnot But I would never bring them home Because I had this peculiar brother Who uh, was autistic and retarded And, you know, imitated television shows On a schedule He would recreate, like, the adventures of Superman
1: mm-hmm.
3: or, or he would sit down at the dining room table For a half an hour and do... Meet the press and play the interviewers and uh, Senator Udall. You know, uh, so that I couldn't have any of my friends over, and I didn't realize that I wasn't alone. You know, that lots of families had siblings, relatives, parents who had some type of developmental disability. It's not like it was; is now. It's much more out of the closet now. Yeah. So. I I feel like this book, The Ride Together, is would be a very useful book for uh, adolescents, especially adolescents or young adults who are struggling with uh, siblings, sibling issues. So that was that was the motivation.
2: Well, I I look forward to reading it. Good. <laughs> um, and I do I I find it interesting when people are able to do a good coupling of the prose and the comics. Um, like uh, what Phoebe did with her book which yeah, is I a completely th- different subject matter
3: that's, <laughs> that's okay. And I think when we did it I don't know if anyone had done it before really and certainly I don't think anyone had, had done it as a collaboration the way we've done, we did it subsequently you know with, the, with one person writing a chapter in prose and the uh, next person taking the story over uh, from their perspective in comics so it's, I think it remains a very unique format. We've got to reissue that thing now that people, now that librarians are hip to graphic novels. You hear that fanographics? Really maybe get to get this thing out there and uh, get it into the hands of people who could really use it. I concur. Okay. Um. <laughs>
2: Thank you so much for taking the, the time with me today, Paul
3: Sure, it was fun to talk to you i am always uh, a pleasure to gas off about oneself
2: <laughs> Indeed, indeed Being And I'm always happy to uh, ask questions yeah. Good and, um, My one request is yeah. that you pick uh, Maybe three or four songs Pick what? Three or four songs Songs? Songs Send me an email <laughs>
3: um, to, to go along with this interview? Yeah well,
2: that would be a pleasure. It's uh, one of the 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 more interesting aspects that we get to do with this is uh, uh, guests pick their own music.
3: Wow, so this is well, this is this will be a pleasure. Be warned though that I I I don't think that I listen to anything recorded after about 1935. So, um, uh, you know what. That That's that okay.
2: something I've gotten used to, doing a radio show about...
3: With cartoonists?
2: With cartoons, specifically the genres that I cover. <laughs> I, uh, yeah. I've, I've had Kim Dyche on.
3: Yeah, yeah we have very similar musical tastes. He,
2: he sent me a box of CDs to pick out from. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I
3: was like, what do I do with this? <laughs> Thanks, Kim. Okay, I'll send you an email with some uh, with some requests. All right, thank you so much, Paul. Okay, Robin, take care. Have a care. good day. Thank Bye. you, bye-bye.
2: Once again, that was Paul Karasik, and uh, you can check out his work in the latest uh, volume of Syncopated, um, City Glass, and uh, The Ride Together, like we talked about, which you can find very easily at any online bookseller. And last but not least, the Fletcher Hanks collections from Fantagraphics, um, I Shall Destroy All Civilized Planets, and The Punishment, You Shall Die by Your Own Evil Creation. See y'all.
0: march from low and grin I am always on the outside looking in Maybe that is why I see the funny side
3: When I see
0: a fallen brother take a bride Weddings make a lot of people sad But if you're not the groom it's not so bad Another bride Another June Another sunny, honeymoon, another season, another reason for making whoopies. A lot of shoes, a lot of rice, the groom is nervous, he answers twice. It's really killing that he's so willing to make whoopies. Picture a little love nest Down where the roses cling Picture the same sweet love nest Think what a year can bring He's washing dishes And baby clothes He's so ambitious even so But don't forget folks That's what you get folks For making whoopies
1: Another year,
0: or maybe less What's this hear? well can't you guess She feels neglected, and he's suspected Of making whoopee She sits alone, most every night He doesn't phone Or even write He says he's busy But she says is he He's making whoopee He doesn't make much money Five thousand dollars per Some judge who thinks he's funny Says you pay six to her He says now judge Suppose I fail, the judge says, "Bud, right into jail." You'd better keep her. You'll find it's cheaper than making whoopies.